Welcome to Travels Through Time, the podcast made in partnership with Colourgraph. I'm Violet Moller, and this week we're embarking on an extraordinary adventure in 19th century Afghanistan. In around 330 BCE, Alexander the Great reached the limits of the known world, Afghanistan. On his long and violently successful journey from Macedonia, he founded many new cities, a chain of Alexandrias stretching across North Africa and Asia. Some of them flourished, others did not. They all lay in the shadow of the most successful Alexandria of all, the capital of Egypt and most important intellectual centre of the ancient world. That city survived, while others sank into memory and then legend. The storytellers said that when Alexander reached the foothills of the Hindu Kush, he founded another great city, Alexandria beneath the mountains which became a vibrant meeting point between East and West, a melting pot of merchants, goods and ideas. This was one of a host of tales that had been told around the campfires of Afghanistan for centuries, but no one had been able to find a lost city. No one, that is, until a ragged Englishman, a desperate deserter from the East India Company army who had travelled incognito for years, fell in love with the country and its romantic stories about Alexander the Great. The academic Edmund Richardson brought Masson's astonishing story out into the light, based on a box of papers he found in the National Geographic Library. Edmund Richardson is an associate professor of classics at Durham University. In 2016, he was named one of the BBC AHRC New Generation Thinkers. So, Edmund, uh, thank you very much for coming on Travels Through Time. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm really excited to have a chance to talk with you. Well, I'm very excited as well. This is a big departure for me because we're going to be going to the 19th century today and I normally spend my time um, much further back. So um, it's going to be a big adventure for me. And I guess on the face of it, it might seem to people that it would also be quite a departure for you because you are an associate professor of classics and ancient history. Am I right? I believe so, unless unless something <laughs> has changed overnight, which is uh, of concern. But but you're not um, you're not an everyday associate professor of classics and ancient history because your interests are extremely eclectic and unusual. And I wondered if you could just talk a bit about that and explain to our listeners uh, the kind of things that you write about and what what you're interested in and what drew you to this story. So. I'm interested, I guess, in why people care about the past. Like, why do we find ourselves um, two and a half thousand years after, let's say, the life of Alexander the Great, still obsessing over his story, still arguing about his story, still trying to figure out questions about his story? Why do people care so much about the past? Why does it matter to them? And how do they try to make the past their own? So how do we tell stories about history? How do we fasten on to characters and places and moments from the very distant past 
in order to make sense of our own lives and our own worlds and the here and now. So I tend to like stories which sort of have a foot in two time periods, if you like. Um, maybe there's a part of the story which takes place in the ancient world. Maybe there's a part of the story which takes place much later in the 19th century or indeed today. So the story we're going to be talking about today is one of those. Um, it's in part a story about Alexander the Great and about how he founded a whole bunch of cities throughout the known world, all called Alexandria, after himself, because um, he was modest like that. And um, it's also a story about how one of those Alexandrias was rediscovered in the 19th century by really the unlikeliest person imaginable, this uh, man called Charles Masson. And I came across this story in a very unexpected way, really. I was trying to I was trying to write about Alexander the Great, which is an incredibly foolish and sort of quixotic thing to do, um, because you know you could fill both of the rooms that we're in right now with books about Alexander the Great and have plenty of of books about Alexander the Great to spare. You know, like way back in the first century AD, people were saying, "Why would you need another book about Alexander the Great?" Um, um, <laughs> so, so, but I was trying to find, trying to figure out: is there a way into the story that's different, that's new? I was thinking, well, maybe not the ancient historians, because the same four or five ancient historians of Alexander the Great have been basically the basis for every story about him for 2,000 years. But maybe there's something else. Maybe he left something else behind. Maybe there's a way into figuring him out through the cities he left behind, through the physical remains of his expedition. And that led me to the city of Alexandria, the Caucasus, or Alexandria beneath the mountains, as I call it in the book, um, in Afghanistan. Mm and to the man who discovered it, um, called Charles Masson. And can you tell tell us the story that you write in the book about when you're in the library? Because I thought that was a good way in to this, this whole bigger story. Well, it's a slightly embarrassing story as an academic, because, you know, we're not really meant to have feelings, or at least some, some, some would say. But I was looking into this man called Charles Masson, and... Inevitably, you come up, come across, you know, as when you're researching someone, you come across the most obvious things first as published scholarship, the, the kind of, you know, Wikipedia level kind of articles about him, and 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 the things that that people people read about him in the nineteenth century, and and I've got to, I've got to be honest, um, they were so so dull. It was so boring, and it was it was just look. Here's this wonderful story. Is this this amazing place? Is this very strange character? But I could so I couldn't get a sense of him as a human being, and I kept on searching and searching and searching. So there's this facade, this academic facade of of where where you you're struggling to see the person behind it, and then there's one day in this library in London. There's, there's the, the Royal Geographical Society, which is this very strange place. It's just hidden below the streets of South Kensington. So you sort of see see people's shoes walking past at the Natural History Museum and then the, the sort of gratings of the windows into the street. And, and, and I opened this box and that... And did you know what was what was in it before you opened I, it? You had no idea? I, I had no, no idea, really. Not, not, not at all. Um, but I knew, I, I'd heard there was something about him in this box. And, in it was the story of someone who'd come across my guy, Charles Masson, um, at his lowest ebb. Um, and he was, 
He'd been disowned by most of his former friends and the ones who hadn't disowned him. He had disowned. Uh, so he was incredibly mm. alone and he was broke and he was, he lost almost everything. And he'd seen basically the things he'd spent years hoping to build getting torn to pieces. And here he was sitting in a hovel in Karachi and the back streets, writing and writing and just clinging on to the story he was trying to tell for dear life because it was the only thing he had left in the world. And it was just so moving because suddenly there's this human being here, suddenly there's this person with hopes and dreams and fragility and desire and longing. And 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 I was just I was just so moved. I found myself just crying sitting in this library, uh, reading <laughs> the story of Masson in Karachi huddled up with his books and his his cheap wine and his, his hopes and dreams kind of holding his hopes and dreams close to him as if they, they were the only thing to keep him warm and I was just just in tears in the library and obviously this is not the done thing in a library let alone one in Britain so no. so the the looks I got the tutting the the, the, the pursed <laughs> lips but if I'm honest with you it's what I hope for in a story, you know, something that well, that was your book. I mean, yeah. that that was the that was the story. Suddenly, you were holding that in your hand. That's an incredible, um, incredible moment. So we've now had this very, very evocative image of Charles Masson at the end of the story. I think now we need to go back to the beginning. And before we get into the details of his extraordinary life, um, can you set up for us? the situation. So we're in the sort of early mid uh, 19th century in India. There's the East India Company and then the British government. And just explain a bit about how that all works. India is gradually falling under the control more and more of the British East India Company. Um, and I, I know you had a wonderful episode with William Dalrymple telling this 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 story yes, much better than I ever could. Um, but <laughs> essentially, um, the British East India Company has started out as a very kind of low-level trading company with a few coastal outposts and gradually has been, over the last uh, few decades leading up to this time, has been bullying and blackmailing and, um, and uh, you know, um, cutting a swathe through um, India, it's, its power spreading out further and further um, until by the 1820s it's the dominant power in India. Um, it controls huge amounts of the subcontinent. It um, has vast armies. Um, it is nevertheless still a private corporation. This is not the British government. This is a company with a huge private army and its own intelligence service. And um, it is dedicated to, very simply, as all companies are, the extraction of wealth from India. So it is in the business of making money. And its power has um, grown beyond that of any company in history. And what was its relationship with the British government? Because that's what I found confounding. I mean, it, 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 as you say, it's an extraordinary idea that there's this company which is basically running an entire country. How, how did it work in relation to the British government? Did the British government have any power over it? It had some power and some influence. And um, more and more, it was beginning to realise that it had kind of 
created a monster and was trying to bring mm. this um, bring this company under its under its control. And that happens more and more over the course of the nineteenth century. And the basically the East India Company kept getting into difficulties and running out of money or starting wars it couldn't finish and it kept on having to get bailed out by the British government. And with each bailout came more and more official control. But it is still particularly because the lines of communication, of course, between India and yeah. Britain are, take a, are very slow and tenuous. It takes a long time for any message to get from one part of the world to another. Thus, the governor general um, and the council in India have the kind of autonomy that we would nowadays um, ascribe only to a nation state. They could start wars, they could raise armies, they could do a lot of things pretty much on their own. And my guy, Charles Masson, um, ends up in India as very much the on the lowest rung of the British East India Company. He ends up as a in India as a private soldier in the army of the East India Company. I should say that though we talk a lot about the British presence in India, it was far from the only presence. Um, there were a lot of um, local rulers who still maintained very considerable power bases. Um, the Mughal Empire was still very much a force in um, centered around Delhi. Um, to the north, um, there was a vast and incredibly well-run um, empire um, centered around Lahore, the Sikh kingdom of Lahore, run by um, Ranjit Singh, the, the great Maharaja. Um, and further, further north still in Kabul, um, there was a very independent Afghan state, um, fractured and fractious, but ruled over um, by... Dost Muhammad Khan. Um, so the British power is a very much a very strong one, but it's far from the only one in the region at the time. And um, yeah. my character, Charles Masson, um, turns up in India basically in the least promising um, guise imaginable as one of the private soldiers of the Bengal artillery. So someone who's basically, whose job it was basically to fight and march up and down India for the greater good of the East India Company, but someone who would normally not be expected to warrant even the smallest footnote in history. Okay. And he does something very surprising and very brave. And I think if you, you have to, can you explain that part of the story now? Because before we go to your first scene, we need to know how he's ended up, um, where he's ended up. So July 4th, 1827, um, Charles Masson is not called Charles Masson yet. He's called James Lewis, and he's an entirely unremarkable soldier in the East India Company. But that day, he decides to make a change. He decides to desert. He walks out of the gates of the um, barracks, the cantonments in Agra. Um, he walks away from his regiment and he sets out on foot across India. And do we know why? Well, I mean, had something kind of, had there been a straw that had broken the camel's back and he just had enough? Or Well, he never admits to doing this, at least not in writing. Um, 
he, he course, writes yeah. his own autobiography later on in his life. Um, there's a there's a bit of a wonderful bit of paper in the archives where he constructs the fake timeline of his autobiography, um, where he makes he completely makes up the story of of this part of his life, um, puts himself in completely different parts of the world. He's 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 a storyteller. Is is uh, is our guy for for today, and um, he doesn't he doesn't really admit to um, walking away. But we can surmise that he um, he got very much fed up of being a forgotten cog in the imperial machine. He he's certainly not someone who suffers fools gladly, and he seems to have uh, um, got entirely fed up with um, taking orders from his supposed betters and um, being uh, being a sort of uh, you know rather rather neglected and ill-paid and ill-treated um, cog of British imperialism. He certainly doesn't think much of the East India Company. He absolutely loathes the British imperial project. Um, so he seems to have just lost patience and um, decided to make a getaway. Now, this, of course, puts him um, in a rather awkward position because the East India Company did not like deserters. It, it, it uh, tended to hunt them down, bring them back in chains, flog them to the point of death, revive them, and flog them again. And that was if you're lucky, otherwise you'd be put to death in a particularly unpleasant manner. So he sets out across India. He owns only the clothes on his back. Um, predictably, he is he does not do very well for himself. He almost dies several times. He ends up robbed, um, robbed down to his underwear, then um, starves on, uh, almost starves on a mountain, then he almost gets frostbite. Then uh, he's, he's saved by the kindness of tra- strangers again and again and again. Um, um, he, he the number of times I, I swear the number of times he's robbed um, or or almost killed um, is is quite eye opening, but gradually he he learns to survive. He learns to the power of stories. He learns to turn himself into um, you know a wandering doctor, a, an Afghan an Afghan holy man. He sometimes appears as he he learns the local languages. He he makes himself. Someone who is almost this quicksilver character who can appear as pretty much whoever you want him to be. And he gradually falls for Afghanistan and for India. Um, He sees that part of the world in a way that no Westerner ever has before, because every Western traveler through this part of the world has done so with guns and servants and retinues and high status and official permission. Uh, Masson has none of these things. He just wanders into a village and begs for shelter. And so impressive how he survived. I mean, you know, the, the sort of physical endurance that he must have um, had is just really, I mean, the, the story about him getting through the desert right at the beginning of the journey. I mean, yeah, amazing, really amazing story. So can you tell us which year and why that you'd like to travel back to today, please? So I'd like to travel back to 1833, because this is where the story of Charles Masson changes. So far, we've been talking about, you know, he's a traveller, he's a curious guy, but um, it's not quite clear why we're talking about him, because there's lots of travellers and curious guys and people who are wandering around India and Afghanistan. But this is where the life of Charles Masson changes forever, where he turns from an ordinary soldier or a ragged traveller into someone who quite literally changes history, someone who not doesn't just change history, but changes the way that we today see the world. And how did that happen, and, and why did that happen? How did he get? How did he fall so under the spell of the legends of Alexander the Great that were circulating at that time? So, 
1833, he is living in Kabul. He is, as you say, absolutely obsessed with Alexander the Great. And part of that is obviously that, you know, the, the British at the time did tend to see India and Afghanistan through the eyes of the ancient past, right? The most reliable book on Afghanistan at the time in the 1830s was in fact Aryan's History of Alexander the Great, right? Um, and this is a, a book written 2,000 years ago by a Roman who's never been to Afghanistan, right? This is the most reliable British account of Afghanistan at the time. So people It says are... so much about the British and the whole sort of colonial project, doesn't it? It really does, that, that they really saw the world through the eyes of the past and, and really imagined themselves following in Alexander's footsteps. Now, for most of them, that meant embarking on a parallel career of conquest and colonialization and imperialism. For Masson, it's something different. He doesn't see Alexander the conqueror, Alexander the, the you know expert in the fine art of homicide. He sees someone as far from home as he is, keeping warm by a fire on an Afghan hillside. He sees a traveler. He sees someone driven by curiosity. He sees Alexander very much in the Islamic tradition, where for in, in Islam, for Islamic writers, Alexander is less a conqueror. He's someone driven by an insatiable curiosity. He wants to see the wonders of the world. He wants to explore the strangest reaches of the earth, the world beneath the waves, the world of the sky. He wants to understand and that's the Alexander who Masson falls for, and that's the one he's hoping to uncover. So he's hoping to basically, Masson stakes everything on trying to find one of Alexander's lost cities. And I've got to tell you that at the time in the 19th century, this is like finding Atlantis. It's like finding, you know, the secret of the universe. <laughs> if he could find an Alexandria, one of Alexander's cities, because he founded Alexandria's wherever he went. He founded them in Egypt, he founded in Greece, he founded them in Persia, in India, in Afghanistan. He founded these things wherever he went. He's like the Johnny Appleseed of cities. It's just this just absurd <laughs> number of Alexandrias. Masson knew that if he found one of these cities, he would turn from a forgotten working class kid into, it would make his name, he, he would it would make his fortune. Because... Remember, as we've been talking about, Britain is utterly smitten and obsessed with Alexander the Great. So if you can fill in a bit of that story, yeah. then suddenly you're someone. And then so, maybe he won't be shot for deserting. As yeah, well. maybe, maybe he gets to live. <laughs> maybe he gets to be famous. Maybe he gets to kind of, you know, turn from this person whom society kept telling, you don't matter, yeah. into someone. So that's a big incentive, definitely. Yeah. Um, okay, well, I think now is the perfect time to go to your first scene um, where we join Masson in Kabul. And can you describe a bit? I know that the first scene is actually winter, but the description, and, and I've read other descriptions of Kabul in other places, and just it just sounds like the most incredible place. So Kabul is, in the 1830s, it's one of the wonders of the world. It's this ancient beautiful city um, and you approach through the mountain passes and you see the plains open up and um, there's this glorious expanse of formal gardens and orchards and fruit trees obviously not so much in the winter but but um, in, in the summer 
If you approach Kabul, it's surrounded by formal gardens, many just laid out by previous kings and emperors. Baba, the first Mughal empire, has set this 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 wonder of the wondrous pleasure garden um, beneath the city walls, and the 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 air is heavy with the smell of um, roses and fruit trees and blossoms. And you ride up to the city, or walk up to the city, and um, it's set beneath the mountains beneath the Caucasus mountains and um, essentially the city slopes upwards so you you walk in through the gates and you you go up and up and up through these winding streets um, with uh, beautiful um, old houses on either side and mulberry trees peeking out from behind their walls and you you plunge into the bazaars, which are one of the, the greatest markets of Asia. Um, so there's people selling fruits and vegetables, and, and there are wandering storytellers. We'll come back to the storytellers in a minute. Um, um, <laughs> Definitely. The, there are holy men and travelers and merchants from all over Asia. So there are there are Parsi traders from Bombay. There are people coming from China, from um you know, to the the deserts from across the land. There are people coming from Russia, from India. Um, so there's this whole profusion of, of traders and, and 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 goods from across the world. And you go up and up and up through through the bazaars, and um, you start to realize that this is one of the most open and tolerant cities in the world at the time. Kabul is somewhere where different faiths live together and worship together and almost um you know would exchange gifts um so christians would send um, muslims gifts on the ruas and um, um muslims would send christians gifts on christmas and easter um this was this mm. so this is a, this is an open and vibrant and tolerant city it's one of the great meeting places the crossroads it's one of the great crossroads of the world um and then and at the top of the city there is this this vast stone fortress called the Bala Hissar, the 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 high, the old high fortress of Kabul, which is just set beneath the 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 snow capped mountains, just rearing over it, and and this is the this is the home of Dost Muhammad, um, um, the the ruler of Afghanistan. So Kabul Kabul is a place of wonders, and it's a meeting place. Magical, just magical. Yeah. And here we find Charles Masson, um, and he's been hearing all these stories about the local of Alexandria under the mountains. What, what, what does he do next? So Masson is trying to find the city, as you say, Alexandria beneath the mountains. And obviously deciding you want to find a lost city is, is all very well and good, but then what do you do next, mm. right? Um, because particularly when you don't have much to go on in terms of Western scholarship. As, you know, as we were talking about a, a little while ago, the best the best British guesses on the location of the city were based on you know a Roman history book from about two thousand years ago. None of the people who were writing about Alexander the Great in Europe had set foot in Afghanistan for over a thousand years. And were there no Afghani sources? Local sources so, available, apart from the. Um, let's then we're going to talk a bit about these stories in a, in a minute. There were no. I mean, maybe there were, but he had didn't have access to them. I, I don't know. So there are some local sources, but they are very much not ones that were in wide circulation at the time, um, and also 
It's the thing about European scholarship at the time. It doesn't, it tends to privilege European sources over almost every other one. So the European, the histories of Alexander the Great were being written essentially solely through Greek and Roman sources at the time. They weren't Mm. using Egyptian, Persian, Afghan, Indian sources at all. And Afghanistan at the time had really not been, no one had really done much in the way of archaeological excavation. No one had looked at what might actually be hiding just beneath the surface of the ground. So really the best European guesses for the the location of this, this city of Alexandria beneath the mountains were hundreds and hundreds of miles away from Kabul. Masson, however, thinks that it must be closer. He's pretty sure that it must be somewhere near Kabul. Because after founding this city, um, Alexander pops up somewhere else a few days later. And he knows that he knows from crossing out Afghanistan on foot on his own, he knows mm. that, um, you know, that that limits the locations of this city pretty radically. So his own experience of crossing Afghanistan tells him where the city might be possibly be he knows it can, it's got to be within striking distance of Kabul but where exactly he's still not sure so what he does is something quite interesting he goes to the bazaars of Kabul and he listens to stories he listens to the stories about whether anything strange has been found anywhere near Kabul he's asked he's wondering have any ancient artifacts been found is are there any rumors about an old city or a ruined city or a place that was once inhabited long ago. And he just wanders around the bazaars and the snows and he listens to the storytellers huddled around fires and huddled around braziers and he keeps his ears open for anything that might be a clue to this place which no scholar in the world, no one in Europe, no one in the West has a clue about where it is. That's such a wonderful thought, isn't it? And and so clever of him, because of course by this stage he'd learnt the, all the local languages fluently, and and as you say, you describe in your book how he sort of disguises himself. I mean, I, I guess by this point it's not really a disguise; it's just what he looks like because he's how do they? I think the Afghans call him the strange bird. Is that right? Yeah, because he looks pretty weird. He's sort of skinny and he has red hair and um, definitely doesn't look. Afghani, but he had, does pass himself off as various different things, doesn't he? At various points. Yeah. So he's a very obviously he hasn't he's been on on the road for years now and um, still has no money, still has no support. So he's very he's this bedraggled looking guy, and um, we have a couple of um, other people's descriptions of him, sort of dressed in rags, um, no socks, um, sort of battered, um, a green cap on his head. Uh, uh, a drinking cup slung over his shoulder. Uh, no one knows whether he's a traveler or a spy or a wandering holy man. No one, no one has a clue who this guy is. Some people think he's uh, think he's a holy man and ask him for charms. Some people think he's a doctor and ask him to cure their sick relatives or their sick children. The British East India Company have a bunch of spies in Kabul and they obviously try to keep an eye on the comings and goings of strangers and they have no idea who this guy is, but they sort of keep an an eye on him and try to figure out who he might be. And um, 
And the Afghans uh, really don't care who he actually is, but are just very, very welcoming to him. Um, but yeah, he's sort of slight redhead, um, scraggly, um, blue-gray eyes. Um, no one is quite sure whether he's a European or whether he's Afghan or whether he's from Persia. Um, but Kabul is full of curious characters at the time. So so he fits in. Fine. So he sort of blends into the crowds and... Um, for the most part, goes unnoticed. Um, um, mm. We'll come back to the few people who, um, perhaps the lady, who, who do keep an yeah. eye on him and do try to figure out who he is. But um, Okay, well, I think we should go to your second scene now. So he, he listens out in the bazaars and hears all these stories, and these stories lead him to the plain of Bagram, and I believe that is the setting for your second scene. So tell us what happens. So... In his wanderings around the bazaars of Kabul, he's heard one place come up again and again, and that's Bagram. And he keeps on hearing uh, from the storytellers, from people in the markets, that ancient coins, ancient artifacts keep getting discovered um, on the surface of the plains in Bagram. Now, obviously, if you're ploughing a field or ploughing the soil of a plain and you keep on finding ancient coins, ancient artifacts in the topsoil. They keep on keep on um, coming up when you're disturbing the soil. This suggests that there's something much bigger below, maybe even an entire city. So he's really excited and he spends the winter dreaming and scheming. And when spring comes um, later in the year, um, um, he, he sort of tries to find out a way to get to background. And he finally gets the blessing of the son of Dost Muhammad Khan, someone called Akbar Khan, who's a really important figure in Afghan history. And he rents a rather bad-tempered um, pony for a few rupees, and he rides out of Kabul in the summer of 1833. Um, it's, you know, fields of wildflowers and fruit trees, and he rides out of the city towards the plain of Bagram, and he's wondering if maybe he'll now find one of Alexander's lost cities. Um, so he gets to Bagram and he asks in village after village after village, have any, any ancient coins been found? Have any ancient artifacts been found? And wherever he goes, everyone tells him, no, no, nothing's been found. Um, those stories aren't true. There's nothing There's nothing to that. Um, and he gets disappointed and frustrated and sad and he keeps going and going and going and everyone keeps telling him no there's there's nothing we have we haven't found any ancient coins and he's about to to give up and go back to Kabul and be like well I guess that didn't work now did it back to the drawing board um and then just as he's about to give up an old man brings out a single ancient copper coin and it's Masson takes it and looks it holds it up to the light and battered, it's defaced, it's impossibly old. And you can't make head or tail of it, but it's like this message from another world that, that tells him that the stories might just be true, that the rumours might just be true, that there might actually be something beneath the surface here. So he takes out basically all the money he has, um, the, the copper coins he's managed to scrounge from doing, uh, uh, from like... Um, practicing as a, as, a, as a doctor in Kabul and as telling stories and finding his way through the world. And he gives gives pretty much everything he has to this old man. And immediately, everything changes. One by one, all the people in the room start to slip out and come back with bag after bag after bag of ancient <laughs> coins, of jewels, of gems, of fragments of pottery, of 
pieces of gold. Um, and why why didn't they tell him immediately? What were they afraid? They of? had no idea he was planning to actually pay to start with, and they were worried that he was he would basically just take what they had, right, and would. Um, set them to work possibly by force, um, scouring the plains for more artifacts. So they thought that nothing good could come of admitting to what they had. So this is where the power differential that is in Masson's in play works in Masson's favour. Unlike every other British traveller who arrived with guns and with armed escorts and, and with um, you know the full power of the state behind them, Masson just wanders in, um, in rags, looking looking um, incredibly harmless and, and 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 sort of bedraggled, and um, and that opened up worlds to him that would be closed to anyone else. Uh, That's so interesting, isn't it? That it, because he was so destitute and because he was so powerless, that actually was his way into the local society. Yeah, he, it means he goes places, he hears stories. He has possibilities open up to him that um, no one else has. And I think it's it's very much one of the things that I really hope people take away from the book and from Masson's story, that there's Masson's approach to Afghanistan, which is to listen and to respect and to honour Right, the people he comes across, and that that ends up yeah. with friendship and with respect and with this whole world Success. opening up that no one else had guessed at. Yeah, and then there's the approach that the British East India Company take, which is to invade and to compel and to take by force, and that that of course ends up with, you know, I I I mean it it maybe go it maybe needs to be said that like. Afghanistan, people, the Afghan people were incredibly friendly and warm and open and, you know, just utterly delighted to connect with people from the West at the time, right? That those Western Western travelers were, were made utterly welcome. Um, the ruler of Afghanistan yeah. wanted to make a formal alliance with Britain. The idea of hostility between Afghan, Afghanistan and the West was just not something that was even in play at, the t- at all. In Afghanistan at the time, and this only happens because you know um, the British decide yeah. that it's it's better to compel than to befriend. And I think the 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 approach Masson took of listening, of learning, of respecting, of honouring, it feels to, it feels like a great road not taken, if you like, in terms of the ways in which the yeah. world connects, and as relevant today as it was. Yeah. Um, in 1833 yeah hello it's Artemis at Travels Through Time we're incredibly proud to be partnering with Jordan Lloyd and Colourgraph Jordan is one of the world's leading visual historians through his excellent craftsmanship he brings black and white photographs of the past to life in startling colour and clarity Jordan's extraordinary work as well as that of his contemporaries can be found on the website colourgraph.co 
At colorgraph.co, you'll be able to explore the process and history behind the colorization work. But most excitingly of all, you can also buy some of these beautiful photographs as museum grade fine art prints. They make an unusual and striking present for that friend or family member of yours who loves the past, and they're an excellent addition to any room. Whether it's a colorized photograph of the US Capitol building from 1846, or a candid shot of the Beatles from 1964, you're pretty sure to find something that enchants you. I know I certainly have many times. It's hard to explain really over audio just how cool these prints are, so I encourage you to have a look for yourself at colorgraph.co. What's more, Travels Through Time listeners get 10% off when they enter the code TTT at the checkout. So fascinating. Right, I think we should go to your third scene, uh, although I feel like I could talk to you about this for hours and hours. We have to move on. Uh, We have to move to northern India, to a small town and a slightly less pleasant character than Charles Massman. So can you take us there, please, Edmund? So while Masson is happily starting to uncover Alexander's lost city in background, while he's uh, wandering around the plains and finding ancient coins and gaining the trust of local villagers, other stories are also in play. The British East India Company has had its eyes fixed on Afghanistan for years. It's You have to think about this. The East India Company is essentially just a perpetually hungry creature, right? It, it, it's never, never satisfied with what it has. It's always looking to gobble up more territory, more land, more money. I'm thinking the first multinational, possibly. I mean... I, I mean, yeah, I think I think that's how that's how William Dalrymple puts it, which I think is wonderful. Oh, really? In, in the anarchy, he thinks about it, about it as like the first, the first, and in in many ways the 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 company which kind of sets the sets yeah. the tone for the worst of the multinational corporations. Um, the ones we're living with today. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. So 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 in northern India, um, in the the sleepy small town of Ludhiana, um, lives. The Britain, the East India Company's um, spy master of the northern frontier, is a man called Claude Wade, and he's a sort of sleepy, um, deceptively calm-looking man with the air of a sleepy spider. Um, and he um, he basically pulls on the strings of um, courts and rulers and informants, stretching up to Lahore and to the court of Ranjit Singh, great Sikh Maharaja, um, into Afghanistan and up to the Russian frontiers. So he's this very kind of, um, frankly, sinister Evil. Uh, I, I'm going to say evil. I'm going to say evil um, because he is uh, blackmail and murders and assassinations and and um, I think and, that and, qualifies as evil. I you think, know, these I think these they're... are these are his favorite things. Um, but um, among his many informants is one in Kabul called Karmatali, and is a very hapless spy um, who who keeps on getting into trouble and um, finding himself on the wrong end of various things. But he's but but Wade's man in Kabul has been keeping an eye on this stranger who calls himself Charles Masson. And like everyone else, at first he had no idea who Charles Masson was. But um, one day he hears a story about Masson where he was asked to write a charm to heal a sick child. And Masson grumpily agrees to, to do this. He doesn't really want to, but he's like, okay, well, anything for a quiet life, fine, I'll do this. And he writes the charm. But 
the spy realizes that as he wrote it, he wrote it from left to right rather than right to left. So in other words, he wrote it in the European manner. So in while he's writing it in one of the local languages, he's right. This man is actually not Afghan or Persian or anything else. He's European, and that that detail makes it makes his way what to a giveaway. Claude Wade um, in Ludiana, and it fills in a piece of a jigsaw puzzle of a file that this that way has been building for years because the man who calls himself Charles Masson has been popping up in one place after another and Wade has been hearing rumor after rumor after rumor about him in the autumn of 1833 the penny finally drops the report from Kabul plus another report um, by an incredibly strange American called Josiah Harlan, who's been kind of mercenarying his way around northern India. And who very um, much introduced Masson to Alexander the Great, didn't he? Because he was the, the sort of first person in the story who was really obsessed with Alexander the Great. He did. Uh, Harlan, Harlan sort of um, and um, meets Masson at the very start of his travels, just after he's deserted from the East India Company, when he's this incredibly hapless and ragged figure, even more so than later on. Um, he doesn't speak any of the languages. And Harlan, Harlan is obsessed with Alexander the Great. And Harlan becomes an informant for Wade and um, tells, tells him about um, this man he met. And Wade realizes that the man who calls himself Charles Masson is actually Private James Lewis, later the Bengal artillery, wanted deserter. Um, and six years may have gone past since Masson deserted from the East India Company, but the East India Company has a very long memory indeed. And Wade realizes that this man in Kabul, this unnoticed man who's somehow gained the trust of the local rulers, who seems to know everyone, who seems to be liked and trusted by everyone. This man is a wanted deserter with a death sentence hanging over his head. And Wade resolves to put Mr. Masson to work. So what he decides to do is to quite simply blackmail Masson. He writes to Kabul and he tells Masson, look, you have two choices. You can go to work for me, you can become a spy for the East India Company, or I can make sure that you are hunted down and some very unpleasant things indeed happen to you. So Massim has been on the run for years, but now his past has caught up with him, and his carefree life of travel and excavation is not going to be the same again. Wow. I mean, not much of a choice there. He couldn't have done anything else, could he? There's so there's so much we still haven't talked about. That there were, I had so many questions. Um, but anyone who wants to know more is just going to have to read your book. I do have one final question uh, that I need to ask you. And that is, if you could have picked up something, a memento, from one of the scenes, what would it be? So at first I thought I would want to bring back the first little coin that Masson found in Kabul, the, the little, little, little tiny indecipherable copper thing, where which changed his life forever and changed changed our knowledge of Alexander the Great forever. But on reflection, you know what? I think I think there's maybe enough um, bits of the past in Afghanistan being uh, 
spirited away from yeah, Afghanistan and, and, and brought back brought back to Britain in the 21st century. So I think I would I would choose Masson's drinking cup, that little thing he had slung over his shoulder that he carried with him on the road. Um, this little memento of a different way of encountering um, Afghanistan. This um, this 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 little this little thing that he carried with him on the road and which um and which sustained him uh, when he was just alone on a on a mountainside um with nothing but his stories to keep him warm at night. That's a really wonderful choice, really meaningful, poignant choice. Um thank you so much, Edmund. This has been really, really fascinating. And um I urge people to go immediately and buy your book, Alexandria, The Quest for the Lost City, because it is an absolutely fascinating read, such a big adventure, and um I can't recommend it highly enough. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Violet. It was such a pleasure to talk and I really appreciate it. That was me, Violet Muller talking to Edmund Richardson the other day about his thrilling book, Alexandria, The Quest for the Lost City, which has just been published by Bloomsbury. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. Thanks for listening. And until next time, goodbye.